Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week I spoke with two podcasting mavens. My guests are Morgan Lee, host of the Quick to Listen podcast, produced by Christianity Today, and Ahmed Ali Akbar, host of See Something, Say Something, which focuses on stories from and about the Muslim community. Both of these talented creators produce stellar shows that illuminate and elucidate a wealth of topics related to their religions, traditions, and cultures, as well as the current events that intersect with them. I was excited to learn more about Morgan and Ahmed's own stories and their perspectives on the present moment. So without further delay, dear listener, let's get into some interfaith-ish. There's so much that I obviously I want to talk about with, you know, the intersection of of religion and the election and the politics and pop culture stuff. But I really just wanted to uh, start by by learning about the two of you. We've got two guests that have fun multisyllabic names. And Morgan, I wanted to ask if you would just begin by sharing your full name because I I've I've never actually talked to your to you about your Hawaiian heritage. So could you share that with us? I can, but believe it or not, Jack, my full name is even longer than what's on my social media. So I will give everyone my actual (laughs) name (laughs) and then I'll talk a little bit about what it all means. So my full name is Morgan Emily Pomeakai Akana Ening Lee, (laughs) which is a lot and also very cool because there's different parts of my family's history that's wrapped up in all of these different names. Emily, which is my first middle name, is the name that my grandma on my mom's side went by. Pomeakai is my grandma on my Hawaiian Chinese side, and that's her name in Hawaiian. Hmm. And Akana is a family name. So basically everyone in all of my cousins, all my dad's siblings, they all have the middle name Akana. Hmm. And then Ening is my Chinese name, and it means peaceful. So that's a little bit about awesome. me. <laughs> Thanks for asking. That's great. That's great. Yeah. As as the dad of a of a daughter that has been given, we think of it as a gift, but maybe at some point in her life, it may also be a burden of a, <laughs> a uh, multi, uh, it's not really, it's not multi hyphenate exactly. It's just mm-hmm. a lot of middle names um, from different cultures and everything. Uh, no, it's, a, it's definitely I appreciate a gift. all that. It's totally yeah. a gift, especially Good. to be able to tell people a little bit about yourself when they ask you questions. Oh, like for sure. Time. Yeah, it reveals a whole story. So, so um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that that story. Did, did you actually grow up in Hawaii? I did not grow up in Hawaii. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where my parents met. Mm. And I did go back to Hawaii a number of times when I was growing up because my family lived there. I've been doing some digging around in this part of my family and my story. And it seems like the Chinese ancestry I have, those ancestors came to Hawaii back in the late 1800s, which was essentially when Hawaii began to become a place full of plantations. So Uh sugar plantation, pineapple plantation, and so forth. And they needed more labor to come. And many of these Hawaiian migrant, or sorry, many of these Chinese migrant workers ended up marrying local Hawaiians as well. Uh And that became the story of my family. One interesting thing is that my grandma, actually, she, um, her parents were also mixed. So they were Hawaiian and Chinese on both sides because she was half Hawaiian and Chinese. 
Oh, wow. Tell us about how your family actually became Christian also in, in that, in that blended, um, cultural family. Sure. So on my mom's side, I do not know the first generation that was Christian. I do know an interesting thing about my mom's parents though. And my mom herself is that my mom was born in Zimbabwe. My Oh, well, there you go. That's a, a curveball I wasn't <laughs> expecting. <laughs> My grandparents were there uh-huh. for five years as missionaries. Okay. And okay. She sadly never been to Zimbabwe since she left when she was mm. five. But my sister, so my my grandparents helped establish a hospital there. And mm-hmm. my sister is a doctor, and she actually went to that hospital a couple of years ago oh, and worked there. Wow. So. The hospital still exists, Very cool. which is awesome and really cool to think of that legacy being there. As far as on my dad's side, I don't really know a lot about the religious history there in the sense of I know that for many Chinese people, honoring your ancestors is something that is really important and mm-hmm. that I know was part of how my dad was raised as well. Hawaii itself, Christianity arrived in Hawaii in the beginning of the 1800s when you had missionaries from New England who came to that part of the world. And when I was talking about the plantations earlier, many of the people that ran the plantations were the kids of those missionaries that had come over. Mm. My dad um, went to a prep school in Hawaii known as Iolani and Iolani and Punahou, which is kind of its rival prep school. That's where Barack Obama went to school. But Iolani has like Episcopalian lineage and heritage Mm. in that way. But my dad became a Christian through campus ministry after he moved to the mainland to go to college. Got it. Got it. And so, so at this point, how do you identify as uh, in your own Christian formation? I identify as a Christian. I work for a publication that covers a lot of things pertaining to evangelicals. And mm-hmm. as many people <laughs> who cover religion will know that is a very fraught identity, especially yeah. in the ways that it kind of manifests politically. But I always right. tell people that the way that the reason that I would use evangelical to describe myself is because it gives me the vocabulary that I use to talk about how I understand God. So mm. there's all these different movements and within the larger Christian tradition have different Mm -hmm. vernaculars and subculture languages. And the subculture language that I use to describe what I would say is my relationship with God, which I think is a pretty evangelical term, Mm -hmm. is is definitely coming out of the evangelical tradition. Yeah. And and would you have always identified that way or is it is it uh, something that you've you've claimed as an identity more recently as an adult? I think that's an interesting question because growing up, I don't know that I thought of myself as anything else but Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Almost thinking that however I was raised as a Christian, that was the default way that people were Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Now I think I understand that there are many manifestations. Mm, I don't want to use that word. There are many ways of being Christian and practicing your faith, right? Right. I went to a Catholic high school and I have had the chance while working at Christianity Today to end up talking to and meeting various people who come from various traditions. I think about Middle Eastern Christianity, for instance, that has all these denominations I'd never heard of before I started covering this beat or people from the Orthodox community or the Chaldean community, so on and so forth. 
that has made me a little bit more intentional about how I would identify. Whereas I don't think I would necessarily said I'm an evangelical Christian in that kind of, um, I don't know, more formal sense before that. Ahmed, I think one of the things I love about your show as well is how it introduces us to the great diversity that is within the American Muslim community and by introducing so many different guests from different backgrounds and really seeing that, um, like Morgan, you were talking about, even within um, evangelical Christianity, the Muslim community itself, although a, a smaller community in the U.S., is, is incredibly diverse and has so many different facets to it. So I wanted to, to hear a little bit um, about that. You, you grew up in Michigan, where it's one of the largest concentration of the Muslim American community um, around Dearborn and Detroit, right? That's correct, yeah. Um, and did you grow up in that area yourself? I, I did not. I grew up in the region. It might be uh, like Southeast uh -huh. Michigan, um, which is where there are a significant number of Muslims the town I grew up in was a was a smaller town, kind of like a you know more very similar to Detroit, um, Saginaw. Um, you know, Flint is is next door, and then Detroit is two hours away. So that was like our our our, our local kind of nexus of Muslim of, of the Muslim community. My parents were you know immigrated to the U.S. in in the seventies, and they kind of you know they they were they were doctors. They they were coming over with, you know, kind of a visa advantage as a result. So that was where a lot of um, the sort of leadership of American Muslim communities um, growing up, that's how they came over. A lot of them were engineers and doctors, although mm -hmm. the texture of the community has changed quite a bit. And so that was sort of the default for me was, you know, um, like these uh, professional immigrants. And my parents, to their credit, did like a very good job of complicating the idea of what a Muslim was and that their experience wasn't the only one. Um, when they first came to that town in Michigan, you'd be um, maybe surprised to know that even though we were so close to Dearborn, the mosque, there was no, um, you know, basically Sunni mosque at the time. It was mm. a ex-nation of Islam mosque run by um, oh, uh, black yeah. GM auto workers who uh -huh. in the 80s, seven, the, around the 70s, 80s, um, you know, uh, the nation of Islam was transitioning to Sunni Islam under the leadership mm -hmm. of Warath D. Muhammad. So mm -hmm. there was these two groups of um, very different groups that were learning how to be Muslim in America. There was the, you know, these immigrants um, from Pakistan, uh, Lebanon, um, you know, Somalia, uh, adapting to the American circumstances. But there was also these, these black American Muslims who, uh, you know, were new Sunnis really. Um, you know, they had been Americans for a long time, but they hadn't been Sunni Muslims for a long time. So, you know, my parents took a lot of learning from, from that experience. And so did I, like I learned a lot from the black American folks as much as I learned from, you know, um, my parents and, you know, like my Quran teacher, who's a Pakistani, Pakistani guy who also immigrated to, to the United States. Um, so that had a huge effect on me and how I made the show, I think, um, oh. because I was exposed to like a diversity of experiences very, very early. Um, and yeah. in some ways in Dearborn and Detroit, those are like more, there's because of the, how big the communities are, you could probably only hang out with like Lebanese, Shia, Christians, in Dearborn if you wanted to, right? Like that might be your community. Uh -huh. Whereas uh -huh. I had no, we had no option. We had to learn how to get along. <laughs> the Dearborn uh, history is especially interesting because actually Dearborn was not 
originally a very Muslim place. It was actually a lot of um, Christian Arabs fleeing the Ottoman Empire who were those early immigrants. I mean, there were Muslims always, but it only became more Muslim in the 80s around that time that my parents came. Um, That's when things really started changing. Um, And so you're right that like there's a lot of very um, integrated uh, Arabs that, you know, practically might have adapted to whiteness some have and some haven't you know kind of dip, everyone mm-hmm. you know like maps onto things differently but they're like even growing up I, I there were people who i would just think they were white like i truly would just like treat them as white and then I, they were like and they would identify as such but then they'd be like actually i'm fully lebanese like you know <laughs> they, they identify kind of identify like as maybe whiteish because they might have like one white grandparent or something and they like move through the world like a white person because they've been in the uh, country for so long and they're you know i don't know for whatever reason because of their connection to other communities, they've been able to kind of adapt that identity, but they're actually like mostly Lebanese. So that, that, that's, yeah. that's been a very interesting experience for me. Well, look, I, I want to um, turn to some of the, you know, the work that you all have been doing um, during these the last six or months or so since we've been part of the pandemic, I, I really felt like Ahmed, some of the, the coverage that you did around around the uh, death and dying in, in New York and what it was like for, for particularly in the Muslim community, I thought was really touching and, and informative about what that experience um, is like. And, and similarly, Morgan, you've been um, doing doing work both with CT, with Christianity Today and with um, your other endeavors. So I wanted to hear a little bit about both about your work, but also, you know, what what are some of the things that that you all have been reflecting on, learning learning about for yourself during this this period of the pandemic. So one of the things that I think that we've spent a substantive amount of time on my podcast, which is a current event show, it's called Quick to Listen, and I jokingly tell people it's about whatever Christians are arguing about that week. And one of those things is conspiracy theories. I'm, I know that they've come up a, a decent number of times in the mainstream media, especially as QAnon in particular has grown more mainstream. So we did a couple different episodes, one about how Jesus interacted with conspiracy theories during his day and trying to just give a broader sense of what that looked like in a biblical context. And then we did another one more in particular that talked about QAnon and what exactly QAnon claims and at the same time, why it's so appealing, especially to Christians. And one of the things that was interesting about that episode was just the fact that our guest was from Australia. He was an Australian pastor. And I remember talking to my co-host before we recorded and he was like, all right, so we're going to have an Australian pastor on to talk about an American political conspiracy theory. And it actually ended up being very fascinating. One of the things that he talked about this, our, our guest, his name is Mark Sayers, was about this sense that how weird it was <laughs> to have essentially um, this radical yeah, extremist American belief infiltrating different places around the world. And he was like, pastors really need to be talking to their congregations about this type of stuff. And, have, you know, we always, he's like, you know, you'll hear these things after terrorist attack towards like imams need to be talking to the people in their um, 
mosques. And he's like, well, in this case, pastors need to be talking to their congregations about this and getting out in front of all of that. And I thought that was interesting to hear a global sense of that. But it's also just led me to do a lot of reflecting about why the why what we're hearing from institutions that maybe we really would have trusted 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago now has been called into question a decent number of times. And we did another podcast early on too about science and how Christians should kind of respond to these types of ideas of quote unquote, believe in science and what the field can and can't answer as it relates to all of that. And and so we've had this theme, I guess, about how to find truth during this time. And it's made me just think again about like, who are we looking to for truth? Why is it hard for people to determine what is true at this time? What about the internet seems like a place that is safe to mm-hmm. explore things that are <laughs> alternative truths, for lack of a better word? And 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 what what does this say about where our society is headed overall, as well as our churches? Well, can you break down for for folks? I mean, and frankly, I'm I'm challenged to understand it as well, not being um, somebody who who moves in Christian circles intimately. Uh, what what is it about? You mentioned QAnon, but but also just sort of this general, you know, very right wing phenomenon. Um, that is 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 wrapped up in in a lot of these extremist um, conspiracies and so forth. That is attractive to certain segments of the Christian population right now. That's a great question, and I think it's always challenging to think of it as it's a primarily faith thing that is driving people into some mm-hmm. of this, or if there's other demographic considerations that should be taken into effect as far as making people more prone to believe in some of these things. I do know that there's something, (laughs) there's a couple interesting things that have happened. One of them is just that one of the claims of QAnon is that there's this giant cabal of elite that are all involved in a giant sex trafficking ring. And one of the things that's been interesting is that sex trafficking as an issue over the past couple of years has become something that is more and more salient for evangelicals and the number of organizations and ministries that do work to um, assist those that are being trafficked has Mm. really grown. And it's become an issue that's very near and dear to a lot of evangelicals hearts. So I know that the central cause, right, of QAnon is something that I think many Christians, specifically evangelicals, can get behind. And in many ways, I would hope everyone could get behind finding sex trafficking, right? But I do think that that maybe have might maybe one reason. Another reason may just be that there is this general com- more comfortability with distrusting things. I don't want to relate this back all the way to that, but obviously for Protestant Christians, right, that is a central way that <laughs> Christians came in. There's strand of Christianity began, right, was deciding to push back against authority. And yes, I think some of that still does permeate our faith, plus on top of it being Americans, right, and kind of having this sense of, well, I can figure out the truth of, on my own. And that and that being why, why there's sort of this cult of personality around Trump that is, I mean, in some cases, I, I, I think from what I understand, it's not I don't know. Some people might 
read it as a a messianic or savior figure, mm -hmm. but I think more of it it sounds like is is more hearkening back to that idea of of holding up a king or a ruler as as somebody that people need to you know obey or be you know as divinely inspired or or chosen by God. Yeah, there's definitely been different literature. This is not necessarily pertaining to conspiracy theories, but when Trump was first um, receiving a lot of evangelical popularity back in 2016, some of the arguments that were made w did invoke different figures in the Bible. Um, one of them was King Cyrus, who is very famously not a Jewish king. And yet, nevertheless, there is this prophecy in the Old Testament about how he will still be able to basically look after God's people during that time. Mm. And so he was seen as, well, could potentially he be, it could, is it fair to consider Trump as a modern day King Cyrus? And yeah, yeah we even published an article kind of asking that question and doing a deep dive on that passage. Mm -hmm. I'm a, a, I, I don't suppose that the <laughs> the folks that you associate with have a similar point of view <laughs> to, to what Morgan just described, but what what are you seeing um, in in the in the communities that you move in right now during these these last few months in particular? I mean, I'm sure there are Muslim QAnon folks out there. I wouldn't be surprised, but I I, I don't I don't particularly know much about that. Um, so, you know, you mentioned earlier the story that I did for See Something, Say Something, my podcast, American Muslims, about how people were dealing with uh, sort of death and dying during this crazy time. That has been a that has been a sort of a huge adjustment for our community um, because our burial practices involve burying people very quickly within 24 hours in um, a city like New York City, where like land is so so valuable and you know uh, burial plots are so so valuable um they basically it's a really it's it's been really hard for the community to to adapt to that because um there at, at the at the peak of the pandemic there wasn't enough um you know places to do um you know uh, take care of the bodies to wash the bodies um you know typically like you would have like four or five people wash a at least in sunni traditions in my that that i was raised in at least um you would have people wash the body um and when you have like 30 40 people dying in the in a day coming to a muslim funeral home in brooklyn and they need to be shipped out to like two hours to like um you know queens or jersey it's really really complicated um so um i that was like a really interesting and strange moment to report on well one of the things i wanted to ask you about in particular in terms of in um, you know, very recent current events, um, especially have, uh, having grown up in, in Michigan, Ahmed, is is this you know plot to to kidnap the, oh, yeah. the governor of Michigan, and and I thought one thing that was very interesting about it was you know this use of the term militias that that is is constantly being being used in in regards to white terrorists or um, you know white supremacists or white nationalist terrorists here in the US, you know, that it's it's under the guise of, you know, basically with this framing of it being, you know, a group of, of good old boys that are, you know, just trying to protect their land or whatever the case is, you know. And 
and I, I thought it was it was particularly striking that you know obviously if if it was a group of guys from you know the Arab side of Dearborn or Bangladeshi side of Dearborn or whatever the case was and and that it would obviously be be labeled as terrorists so I was I'm, I'm curious how first of all just how that story is going down in in the communities that uh, and you know with your family and contacts and everything in Michigan but also just this idea of you know coding language um, as as you know rightly or wrongly still protecting their land and freedom as militias being white folks as opposed to you know out and out being called terrorists so I'll say sadly you know watching like for instance there's a, a uh, another element of this story, which is that there's the sheriff, local sheriff, um, who was actually associated with these people who were trying to um, kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And just he, he sort of like defended them on a news interview, the, the sheriff. Um, mm. And just the energy, the vibe, this idea that like, you know, like maybe Gretchen Whitmer violated the Constitution and innocent until proven guilty for white people, you know, for white, for, for like a white, mm. <laughs> a white militia or whatever you want to call it. Like that's their right. right. That's kind of the argument he made. And that our rhetoric was very, very familiar to me. Like the energy of it, the, the sort of uh, growing up in Michigan, like it's, it, it, it sadly doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, Michigan is a, is a very like, you know, politically, ethnically, ideologically diverse state um and there, those elements have um you know obviously gotten very it's gotten more polarized in recent times i can't say that i've sp spoken specifically about the plot to um uh kidnap the governor with anyone besides my father who um is a big Gretchen Whitmer fan and he has uh, arranged a letter writing campaign in her support afterward afterwards from the muslim community oh, wow. um because you know she has like actually quite a few muslims on staff she's like really represented um you know sort of dearborn in the muslim community so i think he has yeah. a, a lot of uh, uh sort of respect for her but the thing that i have spoken to is a lot of the um folks people are interacting with a lot of these sort of like anti-mass constitution, like conspiracy theorists on one hand, or on the other hand, like people who believe their constitutional rights are being violated. Um, so, uh, you know, I've talked to people who are medical professionals who've like had patients who come in with like masks that say like governor Gretchen Whitmer is like violating my rights. And that's why I'm wearing this mask. That's the only reason like they'll, they'll like have that written on their mask when they go into like uh, see a medical professional. And so, um, you know, this like, public health message of, of how why it's important to wear a mask is something that like a decent amount of my family members are having to explain to people who believe that their constitutional rights are being violated or that you know it's all conspiracy um and of course it's very interesting to see like a bunch of like muslim people having to explain that to uh you know a bunch of like white american um, um michigan folks um and you know the double standard around the the militia and terrorism you know it's. I wish I had something really thoughtful to say. It's not surprising that they're not being prosecuted under, you know, or being kind of like framed as terrorists. Um, you know, I, 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 I this is like a, a rhetorical point that I've actually talked about on 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 the See Something podcast. Like, I, I don't know that the terrorist framework is helpful, except for to violate. 
um, people of color, right? <laughs> so I actually right. don't find it helpful to like want to call them terrorists. I don't mm-hmm. like have it, it. Like I'm not like it's not a victory for me if the white people, white militia, uh, white supremacists. It's not a victory for me if the white supremacists are named terrorists. Uh, yeah, you know, sense. it's it's a victory for me if people are like prosecuted fairly under the law and not put in indefinite de- detention uh, f- because of, you know, their connection to, you know, Islam or, or you know, radicalism or whatever. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 this is like a very popular rhetorical sticking point for a lot of folks and I get it. But um, ultimately, like, I don't focus a lot of energy on it because I don't think the end re- the end result of that rhetoric is going to take us to any place except for, like, the government taking more power to, like, you know, sort of um, incarcerate and uh, unduly punish right. people who may who right. may not deserve it because, you know, there, there, there's a wide variety of ways in which that can be enacted on people. I'm curious how, based on on the circles you move in, where how you see the election going, and and less about who's going to win the presidency, but more about what is the 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 reaction going to be after that. Morgan, what do you what do you think in terms of in terms of what you've you've seen? I predict likely more division within the church overall. I mentioned at the top that the term evangelical has been pretty contentious since 2016. And I don't necessarily see that as abating in any way, even if Joe Biden ends up winning. I do think that a Joe Biden victory may ameliorate some of the immediate things, but there's been a lot of distrust that has been felt in the evangelical community. I want to say about one or two years after the election, there was a big piece of the New York Times talking about people of color, and I think specifically African-American Christians who were were leaving multi-ethnic churches that they'd been a part of. And Mm -hmm. I'm a part of a number of racial justice Facebook groups or Christian racial justice Facebook groups. And the conversations in these groups have become quite heated at various times. Obviously, there's been a lot of other things that have happened with regards to police brutality and so forth that haven't necessarily been part of stuff from President Trump. But clearly, the presidency has, over the past couple of years, has not made things any easier or really de-escalated the situation in any way. So at least do you think it's it's going to be more of a rhetorical argument going forward? I mean, obviously, we've you know, there there's there's policy issues, you know, with 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 how um, a a potentially conservative, you know, a a conservative majority Supreme Court might, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade and so forth. But but I think obviously people are very concerned about, you know, white Christian nationalists groups actually enacting further violence do you get do you get the sense that 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 is down the road in a biden presidency that's a great question and i am a little bit like hesitant to predict on how uh, yeah to give predictions about how this will kind of manifest into some sort of extremist movement or so forth Mm. i think that i see the primary consequences 
as, as far as they how they play out with regards to churches and other institutions, for instance. So will people still want to be going to church together that mm. maybe mm-hmm. tried to make it through the past four years? And will they have the mm-hmm. same interest in doing that? Obviously, COVID has changed lots of things, too, with regards to actual church attendance and so forth. But that that would be one of the things that I would be curious and in investigating. I did think that there's there's nuances to all of this discussion. And so, for instance, just kind of saying all people of color are going to feel some particular way can conceal some of the other stories. So earlier this week, the New York Times had this piece called Latino, Evangelical, and Politically Homeless. Hispanic evangelicals identify as religious first and foremost. That's why, despite despite his harsh rhetoric on immigration, many back President Trump. So mm-hmm. I, I just bring up this piece just to say that there's like nuances in terms of how people support Trump or Biden or so forth. And not everyone that is a person of color is going to potentially find Trump to be as polarizing or as necessary for them to to leave the white spaces that they may have been a part of. Um, but that is one of the effects that will happen. And clearly this also plays out at the institution level too. So will more Christians of color decide to start some more of their institutions, their own publications, um, their own groups to advocate their things? Because there's definitely a sense of, um, in many ways, wanting to disinvest um, that has maybe not played out super formally, but has played out at various other levels because of you know re- repeated frustration with regards to just how maybe white evangelical political goals or priorities um, get centered more than their own. Hmm. Ahmed, what about for for you? Do you have any any? Um, I mean, you're you're moving between Michigan and New York. Do you have a sense moving through these spaces what um, what the energy is like? So the election might go. Yeah. Um, I'll also speak about the Muslim community. I will. I will say, in 2016, I had this really strong gut feeling that, despite all predictions, that Michigan would go. Um, blue because it's like a easy blue and that it would go for trump and it did partially because of um you know it is it is like a, a state with a lot of working class tendencies um in uh you know auto with the failure of the you know sort of auto unions and the the struggle of the, of the auto industry like a populist right. movement can be popular that way and, and trump effectively i think used that strategy to win michigan and the and the, the sort of democrats believe that they had like an easy win there could happen again i don't know i'm not less i'm less sure about this time because i'm less sure overall about about just how the election is going to turn out it's so chaotic and unpredictable um i'll also echo morgan's statement i mean i've talked talked to so many um you know new yorkers non-white new yorkers who um are surprisingly sympathetic to trump it's 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 not uh, you know I, I, I don't know it's people are it's a very it's a very confusing time uh in, in many ways i uh, honestly, not not specifically about that just i mean like people are looking to make meaning of the world you know um it's not it's 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 really really complicated um, but i will say that on a, on a political level in terms of like what this what this election last four years have done for for muslims um you know a lot more muslims have run for office as a result of trump's mm-hmm. election and muslims mm-hmm. have emerged as a um surprisingly a defining force on the progressive wing of the party with 
talking about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, but we're also talking about like uh, Faye Shocker, who um, was campaign chair for Bernie Sanders. And, you know, the Muslims for Bernie was like an incredibly uh, popular thing in our community where a lot of folks are organizing um, for, for Bernie. Of course, there's no Muslim, monolithic Muslim vote. I mean, there's a huge amount of, um, you know, Muslims who are also pro-Biden. I mean, there's, there's a lot of folks who, uh, you know, I don't think there's any like putting the Islamophobic violence that's been a result of the Trump presidency back in the bag. But I think there's this hope that we can return to a sense of normalcy. Um, you know, we are very, as a result of the Trump um, presidency, I think Muslim Americans have had to be very reactive to the violence and rhetoric that can come sometimes comes in these like incredibly oppressive waves and you know, we've had to be resilient in a, in a, in a way that um, has been very hard. Um, but there is, you know, definitely like a decent amount of, I think, uh, support for Biden as a result. But there's also a decent amount of alienation as well, um, mm-hmm. because um, Democrats have also enacted policies that have been um, challenging for Muslims. And as far as like what will happen after the election, I mean, I'm a very, uh, I would say, cynical kind of around um white supremacist rhetoric. Uh, I came into this world of like sort of talking about my identity and Muslims because of 9-11. Obviously, there's like a longer mm-hmm. history of like Muslims in America, but that was my defining m- moment of like um, uh, having to explain myself as an American Muslim. Mm-hmm. And what I found was despite like putting in 10 times the effort to like explain myself. Yes, some people's mind was changed, but some folks really just knew about Muslims and still decided to hate us, you know? So yeah. I, I, I have, I, I do my best to sort of like by my work support my community and, 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 you know, be a voice for them. But I also understand that like, hate is something that needs more than just Muslims speaking out against it. It needs like a whole society speaking out against it. Otherwise it won't be stamped out. Um, so I, I feel a little wary about what will happen after the election and wh- what will the, you know, if there is like a outbreak of any sort of, I mean, there's going to be a lot of outrage for sure if Trump loses and what, if there's, you know, any sort of violence around that, then the question is like, what will people do to protect their neighbors and their, their communities is a, is a, is a really, um, unsure one for me. Yeah. Well, this has been very, very intense. Um, <laughs> a lot, as you're we're saying, here for it. Ahmed, there's, there's, a, yeah, there's a lot. I wanted to uh, 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 wrap up uh, this, this part of it just, just uh, with, with something apropos of absolutely nothing and just ask Ahmed, um, how excited are you about the Miss Marvel TV show and uh, this casting of uh, this new actress? Um, what's her name? Imani Iman? Vellani, I think is her name. Yeah. Um, so excited. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Like, you know, one of my f- fake news WhatsApp forwards I got was I got a message from my aunt goes, they're making a Pakistani superhero story. The author is a Pakistani. The author of Miss Marvel is not a Pakistani, <laughs> by the way. Um, I was like, the author is not Pakistani. The author is a, is a, is a white Muslim woman. White Hugo Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. I mean, she was yeah. co-created with Sana Amanat, who is the editor, but she, Sana Amanat is not a writer. Um, anyhow, I've been a huge fan of Miss Marvel for years i'm a comic book fan i'm a superhero movie fan um i give 
the first um, trade paperback of Ms. Marvel to every one of my nieces and nephews whenever I have a birthday. <laughs> um, I think they should all be reading it. I think everyone should be reading it. And the fact yeah. that she's going to be, she so quickly went from, you know, something that like excited me to being like kind of a hot comic to like, she's very soon going to be a national figure. I, I, I would say is pretty amazing. I mean, it, it's a, it's really one of the most unique and well done depiction depictions of like a young you know Pakistani Muslim I've seen you know so I'm really curious to see how they'll adapt it to TV I hope they do it justice um, I think with like Rami and stuff there's, there's room for that yeah yeah you can do the the Rami Miss Marvel crossover that'll be interesting right because they're, they're both from the Jersey <laughs> well I mean if they, if they do it right they're gonna like there's like this great imam character in the first couple episodes which is so he's so good and i just would like you know i I don't know i just want i just want to i'm really curious how they're gonna do it It, because it it, it has frankly it has a lot of potential to go wrong (laughs) because the original author g willow wilson is very brilliant and she she depicted ms marvel with a lot of nuance um Mm -hmm. but when the transition to tv happens you never know so i'm really optimistic Shireen Obeid Chinoy is directing it as well, which is cool. Yeah, I think all the, the behind the camera stuff, I think, is 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 the even more exciting part about it to be because that's that is the next step, you know, to be able to to fill that out with um with crew that not just cast but crew as well that are helping to create these things. Um well, we'll have to we'll have to do something else, a part two, when 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 the show comes out, we can we can talk about that. I'm sure you're going to be talking about it at length on your show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to uh, hold some time because I'm really excited to to. To have the two of you, you know, ask each other some questions as well. That's a part of our our show is that we have we leave some time for for guests to to follow up about things that that you'd like to know either about each other's traditions or life stories or what have you. So um, I'll turn it turn over to you guys. Do you have questions for each other? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to pretend that you were on my podcast okay. <laughs> and I could ask you some <laughs> questions that I have actually been very curious about. Obviously, a big thing that. I do on my own show is just landscape and environment or subculture for our listeners. And I was wondering if you'd just be able to kind of give me a sense of what are the different communities or camps within the American Muslim community and how do they all kind of interact with each other? Yeah, I mean, that list is is extremely long, obviously. Um, <laughs> I think within, within the Sunni community, um, I think a highly influential force is the Black Muslim community, which is itself incredibly diverse. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have, um, you know, young, you have younger folks coming at the religion from, um, you know, uh, exposure to Sunni Islam. You also have folks who are the children of, you know, uh, converts from the uh, nation of Islam to Sunni Mm -hmm. Islam. Um, You know, you, there's a, a large class and race Hmm. of folks who are immigrants um, from working class to professional class, um, you know, taxi drivers, doctors, you know, um, creatives, all that stuff. There's also like, obviously like an emerging force of like people like myself or children of those immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and not not to say that there's not also a lot of like white Muslim and Latino converts as well, which are are are, are quite an influential force as well. And then of course there's you know, there's Shia Muslim communities. Um, which uh, operate in sometimes overlapping, but sometimes quite different spaces as well. Um, and, you know, there's like significant, um, I would say, South Asian and Persian mm-hmm. uh, Shia communities in the United States. Um, and the other really kind of interesting little story about Muslims in America is the presence of Sufi orders across the United States that mm-hmm. have some really interesting histories. Mm-hmm. Um, those are um, generally more local um, in a way, in the sense that, like, uh, there are local spiritual leaders in, like, places like Philadelphia, for instance. There's the Baal Muhayyadeen Fellowship, which was, like, a Bengali um, man who came in the 60s and and, and basically um, was a guru. And uh, in when an era when, like, being a guru was very, very popular, but it turns mm-hmm. out he was, like, a Muslim. And, like, there's a, now a lot of, like, white older white folks who have been Muslim for many many years as a, mm. under his Sufi leadership um I could go on and on there's there's there's, there's I mean there's I listen to stuff I love so thank you for indulging yeah, me on this I, I'm curious do you think that having these communities in the U.S. kind of brings people together or makes maybe the various factions of Islam feel a larger sense of camaraderie or do you think folks end up staying more in their own lanes? Yeah, that's a really, such a complex question. I mean, I think a lot of the sort of uh, post 9-11 experience of, that I saw was that the thing that you first said, which is like, America is so special for Muslims because all the whole world is here and it's like, you know, everyone is learning from each other. Um, and to an extent, there's some a kernel of truth in that for sure. I mean, but it does ignore the, the ethnic Mm-hmm. Uh, diversity of every Muslim country. Like, it's not mm-hmm. as if Pakistanis, for instance, are one group. There's a lot of different types of, of Muslims in Pakistan. And some of that um, nuance is going to get lost as you get separated from um, you know the original community. Like if you come mm-hmm. from like a, 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 a you know a certain sector or or caste or community in Pakistan, you're, you're going to maybe be able to replicate that in the United States, but probably not probably you have to find new bonds and that's um that's going to build its own culture and community so mm-hmm. i would i, I it, the binary is it's like an easy one to think through and it, there's like a little bit of truth but what's really happening in america is like a new community is being built and it's different and it has its own bias it has its own boundaries and like you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, anti-blackness is definitely a part of our community as well so there's like a lot of um boundaries that are Re, kind of created and, and reestablished um, as a result of all these folks being here. I'm just so curious. My final question is, so one thing that I've observed around a number of immigrant communities is that the religion or the religious fervor or intensity of the generation that immigrates here is not necessarily always carried on by their children and that oftentimes children can become more secularized in how they view their faith. Do you think that is true for this community as well? So um, I'm not an expert on the polling data, but my understanding is we are a rare community where that is not the case. Um, It may have changed in recent years, but Mm -hmm. um, previous polling data was like that. No, actually, like young Muslims are are, are actually 
pretty religious and uh, on, a, on not on a not on a they haven't become less religious than their parents necessarily maybe not more i i, I would have to mm-hmm. go back and look at that um and that that plays out in, in my in my experience i mean when i compare myself to my own um like my peers it's it's really unusual for like a, a young muslim person to not at least have some connection to the mosque or like people who go to mosque like mm-hmm. uh whereas i think it's uh, for christians that's that's really really common and, and, and for other communities as well like jewish communities it's very possible to like not be at least connected to a religious tradition you might identify as jewish or, or christian or whatever but you're, you're not necessarily like connected mm-hmm. to a community whereas i think a significant number of muslims young muslims are ahmed do you have any questions for morgan yeah so i'm going to do a very different kind of question morgan if that's okay <laughs> coming back to this ms marvel thing which i'm very fascinated by i think a lot of interest in a muslim faith practice in media uh, and that has been reflected in things like Rami and probably Ms. Marvel and like a lot of movies that I see. What do you, do you feel like there is like a, a non-religious Christian media that you like enjoy consuming that really gets into the idea of like what it means to be like a part of a Christian community now, like TV or movies mm. that you, you, you would recommend I watch or you wow. like to watch? That's a great question for this non-TV watcher. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I Morgan, just... Morgan likes taking walks outside. <laughs> You're better know, than I'm, me. I'm the worst when it comes to this. Okay, give me one second to think about some of the stuff that we've covered lately. I, I do know... I'm not sure if you're aware, Ahmed, but this is actually kind of a recurring gripe by many evangelical Christians is about how they're either not portrayed or under portrayed or falsely portrayed in movies, TV, and so on and so forth. The thing that most quickly came to mind, and I don't even know because I didn't watch this show and that shows you how bad it is, um, how distant I am from pop culture is how much Christians love Friday Night Lights, which uh-huh, I want right. to say did kind of depict, at least to me, I get I get the sense of like how many white evangelicals wanted to be portrayed and made them feel a little bit like they were seeing themselves. I think in general, there is this general huge distrust that many white evangelicals in particular feel around how Hollywood is going to share their stories or not share their stories um, and complicate them or not. The other person who I feel like at least in some of the circles that I hang out in is very loved is Terrence Malick. Terrence Malik. How do I say it? Tell me someone. Yeah, Terrence Malick. Mm -hmm. Terrence Malick. And in his most recent film, which is not necessarily about white evangelical in the U.S. today, but is about a very convicted Christian who ends up essentially deciding that he will not go along with the Nazis during World War II. And it's just kind of about someone who very quietly but boldly takes this extremely costly stance. That was a movie that I saw Christians that are in the circles of Christianity today speak very highly of and feel very, in many ways, convicted by. So that might be one movie that I can think of. In general, though, I think I was, I'm actually a little bit struggling to think of the last time I saw an evangelical Christian family kind of in pop culture beyond. And I mean this, I, I know this is like tongue in cheek to say this. There are a lot of evangelical Christians who are on reality TV 
yeah. one of them is premiering <laughs> this week the bachelorette that one actually does pull a number of people who i would say are evangelicals and faith has actually come up a number of times on that show specifically around sex and convictions around that but also contestants will talk about their faith and do so in ways that going back to my comments at the top about how it feels very evangelical how they talk about them and how they're making decisions so <laughs> i don't know if that's how evangelicals want to be portrayed but there are a number of them that are on that show in various seasons. I was going to say, Ahmed, have you have you watched the God's Not Dead series? Because I hear that that's really good. <laughs> I have seen the trailers <laughs> and laughed at them, uh, but I have not seen them. Uh, my, I have not seen them. So the other thing that I'll say that I think is very interesting that I want to know about, uh, like sort of evangelical communities in particular, is in my experience of let's not say evangelical, but to like revivalist or like similar kind of like um, trends in Muslim communities is what can happen is when you are a non um, when you're outside of the maybe ethnic group of the of the community that you're in, you might get subsumed underneath that. Meaning to say, like a lot of folks um, adopt Arab characteristics, even if they're not Arab, because that's seen as a way of being like the most mm. authentically like say Salafi, for instance, would be one one version mm. of that I might compare. Um, you know, not not to like oversimplify things, but but I might compare to evangelicals. So I wonder, um, you know, my exposure to um, non-white evangelicals is a little more limited. So I'm wondering how like like whiteness plays a role in or or anti-racism even maybe on the other hand um, plays into the even the non-white evangelical communities that you you um, you know sort of know. It's hard because I think a lot of times it comes in sideways, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things that gets talked about a lot is about the music that folks sing at church, right? Worship music. And who are the people that are writing the songs that get sung on Sunday? So when you have a church that's intentionally deciding to be multi-ethnic, one question that <laughs> I think many people of color who are attending the church will ask is, are we just going to keep singing songs all the time that are by these Western, in most cases, white songwriters? Now, what's interesting is that a lot of the music today actually does come from Australia. Hmm. I'm not sure if either of you guys are familiar with Hillsong, but Hillsong is a church that started in Australia and they have popularized a lot of the music that is sung in church and around the world. There's been different Hillsong songs that I've liked, and you can go online and you can easily find those songs in French and Portuguese and Spanish, and you'll hear them sung at different conferences in different places. So that is something that comes up, and I know that at various times there has not necessarily been the intentionality of maybe learning more Black gospel music that would get sung right, in church right, or right. worshiping in a particular style that feels not like what we do at church. So that's something that I think there's varying degrees of intensity. I also know that there's different um, multi-ethnic congregations too that may, for instance, sing a song in Spanish, which is interesting. Some of their congregation may speak songs or sing in no Spanish. Some of them may not. Um, but that would be one way that that kind of plays out. I once read this line that said that like, if you're going to church and more than 70% of the church is feels comfortable and normal for you, that church is like not actually doing anything cross-cultural because it's just mm -hmm. accommodating you and your culture. Mm -hmm. And I think there's still a lot of 
defaults in even the evangelical world that are meant for white people and that many of the leaders, even if they want to really create spaces that are multi-ethnic, the institutions that they came up in, the friend groups that they have, the books that they read, right, the spaces that they're in aren't really challenging them enough in that way to even give them the imagination, creativity of what that is going to take from them and to make it look like. But I hope that that's a place that we can increasingly move into. One thing I will say, though, is that, you know, in many ways, the conversation around race and racial justice seems like it's become a bigger conversation within the evangelical world at large, but it's also definitely stayed just as contentious. And there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago, actually, that showed for a sizable number of white evangelicals, support for some of this stuff had actually seemingly declined in the past year. So mm-hmm. it is going to continue to be a very painful time, I think, for many um, evangelicals of color that feel like they should stay in that movement, but who will, I think, continue to be tested in many ways. Well, I want to just thank both of you. I think this has been such an illuminating conversation. Like we said at the beginning, there there's so much that we we could talk about. We we barely scratched the surface. I hope that that you you both you know take the opportunity at some point in the future to continue the conversation on on one or another of your of your shows because I I definitely want to tune in to listen to more of that. For sure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and I just I I wanted to say you know just in terms of thinking of of um, of this period and something I've shared on the show before with some of our other other guests is this opportunity that the pandemic presented for for me on the show is is to reach out to to other folks who have programs that are interacting and discussing uh, issues of religion and culture on some level or another. And so it's been a really a great opportunity to, um, to, to follow up with and, and, and talk to folks like yourselves that, that have these great platforms. Um, and one of the things that really motivated that was this quote um, that I wanna share with you that, that um, I read at the, at the very beginning of the pandemic, it was a letter that came out from the governing institutions of the, the Baha'is, the Baha'i community that um, was really a motivation and inspiration to me. And it says, at a time when the urgency of attaining higher levels of unity founded on the incontestable truth of humanity's oneness is becoming apparent to larger and larger numbers, society stands in need of clear voices that can articulate the spiritual principles that underlie such an aspiration. And I really think of your work as as those clear voices that are are helping us to to recognize humanity's oneness and and that you all are are doing so well at articulating the spiritual principles that that underlie it so i want to thank you for that thank you for thank you thank you this was great jack thank you so much yeah. and very fun to talk to you Ahmed. yeah great talking to you too Dear listener, that is a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Morgan Lee and Ahmed Ali Akbar. I highly encourage you to check out both of their shows, 
quick to listen and see something, say something, which are available now in your favorite podcast aggregator. You can also find them on Twitter. Ahmed is at Rad Brown Dads. Just listen to the show. It'll all make sense. And Morgan is at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And for those that are keeping score at home, yes, those are her initials. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Follow us on social media at interfaith ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line at 202-599-2953 and keep writing us about the Interfaith Ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith Ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.